the, the BCC Weekly email this week so that you can find, the, find your way there, but it's, it's pretty easy to get there from the church here. So next week at 5 o'clock. Um, this morning, we have the privilege of having Jana Hubler with us. Many of you, if you've, especially if you've been here for a while, you know that name. Jana has been serving as a missionary in Asia for 30 years now, and Brown Corners has partnered with her in support for almost that entire time. And uh, we have the privilege of uh, having her share here for a few moments this morning. And before I invite her up, though, I want to let you know that um, we are having a luncheon afterwards, and she's going to share a little bit more there. So we want to make sure you know you're invited to stay for the luncheon. Uh, we would love to have you so that you can hear a little bit more uh, about what God's doing in, in her life and ministry. So, Jana, come on up. Would you welcome her? Yeah. Um, a, a blessing to get to be here. When you think about the place where I serve, you might think it's a complicated place, and if that's what you think, you are right. Maybe you get images of the Winter Olympics. Maybe you get images of lockdowns and has suits. Maybe you get images of space shuttles. Maybe you get images of fried noodles and crab rangoons and fortune cookies. I hate to tell you, they don't have crab rangoons or fortune cookies in China. Those, my friends there do not know what those things are. Those are really only from American Chinese restaurants. Did you know that? Like, I have taught my Chinese friends what a fortune cookie is. Seriously. Um, they do love seaweed, and I have a table outside with seaweed for you to try. So kids, I especially encourage you. It's a favorite snack over there. It's like potato chips. So I encourage you to try some of that um, to get a real taste of, of uh, China today. But when I think of this place, what comes to my mind, and my main image is people. So many People. Everywhere you go, there are so many people. 1.4 billion people in this country. 1.4 billion souls. And, you know, sometimes even my friends there will ask me, you know, what do you love about, about our country? And um, I always say, it's the people. It's the people. So I want to tell you about just a few of those people here this morning. Um, first of all, let me tell you about my pastor there. So I attend a, a public church there. Um, it is the legal church there. And, and the pastor of my local legal church is a sincere believer doing everything he can within that system to share his faith. And this has been a difficult year. You've probably heard things are clamping down on Christianity, and that is true. Um, it's, it's been kind of combined with the whole COVID crisis. COVID is being very, very, very tightly regulated um, in mainland. And I'll be sharing more about how that all happens during the luncheon today. But um, a piece of that has been that our churches have been closed most of this year. Um, and maybe, were you closed at the beginning of COVID some? Did you have to go totally online for some amount of time? Yeah, you remember that, right? So if that were still going on now, you can imagine how hard it is to keep your faith going strong just online, home alone, week after week. And it's been very difficult for our pastor as well. Um, it'll be like, it's, it'll be closed maybe for two months and it'll be open like a week or two. And then if there's one more case in our city of a million, it'll close down again. And um, so I went to visit him and his wife right before I came to the States. I just wanted to encourage them. And you know what they told me? They said, God has been faithful. He's continued to meet our needs, even though people um, aren't able to come on Sunday mornings. Um, he has met our needs. And they said, you know, Jana, this time has been a, a time of purification of our church. And they said, when we look back at the Cultural Revolution, that was a time of purifying of the church. When we really found out who were the true believers, that even when they suffered for their faith, 
would be faithful to God. And they said, we feel like this is another time like that, that we're seeing in our church who are the people who their faith is really important to them, and they're keeping that as a priority. And so they said, this difficult time, God will use for good to purify our church and strengthen the true believers. And I was touched um, by what he shared. I think of another uh, woman, a friend of mine, her name is Ivy. Ivy is probably like in her 30s, and she works in Macau. So there are people from mainland who cross over to Macau to work each day because they get higher salaries there than they would in mainland. And I met her in Macau. So I started out in Macau like 30 years ago. And yeah, some of you met me when I was like 22 years old. And you're probably like, oh my goodness, she's so old now. And, and you're right. I can't believe it's been that long. Um, but anyway, I started out in Macau. And I met Ivy in Macau when she was a contract worker there. And she came to faith in Macau. Well, later when I moved into mainland, I'm actually living in her hometown. And I had sort of lost touch with her, honestly, for probably five, maybe probably about five years. And about a year ago, a friend of mine in Macau who's a strong believer said, hey, I saw Ivy recently. You need to connect with her. You need to help her connect with some believers in her hometown for when she's back there and not in Macau. So I reconnected with Ivy, and she had a daughter um, who was 10 years old. And um, I invited them to come to an Easter party that I did. Um, kind of Easter and Christmas are chances where I can share about my faith a little more openly with, with groups of kids and their parents who get together for gatherings. And um, so they were there. And about one month later, her daughter tragically died in, in an accident at home. It, it was a shocking moment. And I was the only believer she knew in her hometown because her, her fellowship she normally um, attends is in Macau. And, and, you know, God had just brought us back together right before that tragedy happened because he knew it was coming. So that um, the night that it happened, I went to her home and, and tried to comfort her. And through that, her family has just welcomed me um, into their home. And at Christmas, they actually came to my house on Christmas Day, and I was able to share the Christmas story with them on Christmas Day. Um, Ivy, as far as I know, is still the only believer in her family, but I believe that her testimony of faith in God, even through such a horrific, difficult time in her life, um, will help to bring her family to Jesus. And it's people like that, that make me excited to go back at the end of the summer and continue sharing my faith. I think of an elderly couple that I know. This elderly couple I've known for um, also nearly my whole 30 years over there. He, he was an education official when I first started doing some teaching in mainland China. And um, at that time, uh, he was not a believer but he got to know our team, and he welcomed us to come in and teach in public schools in mainland China, which at that time he got quite a bit of criticism for. China was just opening up at that point, and people were like, you know, we're really not sure a bunch of Americans in our schools is a good thing. But he really felt it was good for their students, and he, um, although he did not share our faith, he did know about it and trusted us that we would um, not um, cause trouble, um, purposely caused trouble for him, I guess is what you would say. And so um, he started introducing us to different education leaders in the area, and it's through that man that I got the position that I now have. So I'm currently um, working for the Public Education Bureau in a small town, and um, I am helping with teacher training there and also teaching seventh grade students. So this man um, eventually retired from his position as an education official, and we have stayed friends all of these years. And probably about uh, five years ago, his wife started suffering with pretty severe um, depression. And um, they didn't know what to do with that. The whole uh, mental health care is not very developed there. And, but I had suffered uh, when I was in Macau. I, I went through a time of, of uh, depression and anxiety and, and got a lot of help for that. So I went and visited them. And when I went and visited them, he said to me, he said, Jana, could you just, could you write down your whole experience with that for us so we can just sort of read through it slowly and, 
and gather what might be helpful to us. And I thought, he, he just asked me to write down my testimony for him. Like, I can't write, I can't write about that whole experience without sharing about my relationship with God. So I was like, I'll be happy to write that down for you. So I was able to write through that whole experience in my relationship with God and how he brought healing and, and restoration and redemption in my life. And um, I, visit, you know, I visit them regularly. Um, and I would occasionally ask him, you know, so you've learned something about God. What do you think about that? And he would just sort of always give me a vague answer. And I had come to the conclusion, okay, I don't think he will ever be able to directly tell me if he believes in God because of his, um, even though he's retired because he worked for the government, if he would, uh, if he would, you know, be baptized in the church and the news would spread, his current, I mean, his former colleagues would get in trouble that one of their retirees came to faith. It's, it's all very tightly controlled. So I thought, that's okay. I don't have to know. This isn't about me and about me knowing if somebody came to Christ. This is about him and God, and I'm just going to keep sharing, and I'm going to trust God that, that God knows his heart. That's what's important. Well, just about, uh, well, at the beginning of May, on Mother's Day, I went to visit them, and they told me a pastor had visited them at their house. Like a neighbor had somehow invited a pastor to come to their house. I'm not sure exactly how God did that. It's amazing. So a pastor that I know, a Chinese pastor, he had shared with them. They also had a, a former classmate now uh, who has immigrated to the States, calling them every week, sharing with them the gospel over the phone. And I saw all this coming together. So when I visited them on Mother's Day, and we took a walk, and we were out so no one was around us, and I, I turned to him, and I said, you know, what, what are you thinking now about God? You've heard so much about him recently. And he looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, I believe. It was a 30-year, yeah, yeah, go God. Like, it was a 30-year <laughs> prayer and investment by so many different people in his life. And what a thrill to see him finally um, come to Jesus. So that's what I think of. I think of all these precious people, and I'm so thankful for the opportunity to be there and share my life and my faith with them. And I want to just especially say thank you today to all of you for your support, your financial support, and your prayer support for all of these years. It's amazing to me that I've been, you know, working overseas for 30 years, and God's people have been supporting me that whole time. That It's humbling to me. Um, at this point in time, my salary is coming from my teaching job from, from the Education Bureau there, but all of my benefits, my retirement, a lot of things that I can't get through there are provided through my support here. And so um, I want to say thank you, and thank you for your part in people coming to Christ there. Some of you have came to Macau on Teams. If you did, please come and say hi to me. I'm getting too old to remember everybody, so you just have to come and tell me. Um, but I really appreciate Brown Corners and your faithfulness through all these years. And may God just continue to bless your ministry here in Michigan and throughout the world as you are such strong supporters of missions. Thank you.
what a blessing to hear those stories. And I just want to remind you, we'll, uh, we have the luncheon afterwards. And if you'd like to hear a little bit more, come join us and, and she'll, be, she'll be sharing there. Please join me in the book of Jonah, chapter 1. We'll be, begin in the last verse of the first chapter. We left Jonah being thrown overboard into the sea. And the storm calmed, and we find him sinking into the depths. And the title of the message today is God's Grace in a Fish's Belly. God's Grace in a Fish's Belly. Please follow along as we read, beginning in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. And I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. We have here uh, a picture of Jonah sinking down into the depths. And uh, if you have the the notes that were in the bulletin, uh, don't pay any attention to them. Um, I, I, I... put that together before uh, we went on vacation, and when I came back and just began to look at the text again, I thought, I don't, I don't think the text is saying this. So I, uh, I just spent a little bit more time studying, and uh, so the, the outline, is, I, don't, I didn't even get it on the, on the screen, but if you are taking notes, I can, I can let you know the, uh, where we're going here. But the first, the first thought I, I want to share with you is Jonah's descent into the deep. Jonah's descent into the deep. Jonah went overboard, and um, there's a progression here that we see throughout chapter 1. Uh, chapter, or verse 3 says he went down to Joppa. And later in the verse it says then he went down to the ship. And then verse 5 says he went down into the lower part of the ship. And now in chapter 2, verse 6, it tells us that he sank down into the deep. We see here a picture of a man who's going deeper and deeper and deeper into his sin and his rebellion. Some of you know what that's like. You've been there. Despite God's warnings, despite God's people coming into your life to exhort you, you you still continue to run. You still continue to go down deep into your sin. Maybe some of you this morning even find yourself there. And God's call to you is the same as to Jonah, to come back, to return. Jonah was descending. And it says that God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, usually when we think of the book of Jonah, we think immediately of this fish or the whale or whatever it is. Because of time this morning, uh, we're not going to try to talk about all the theories with the fish. Um, But if you're interested in that, uh, in the BCC Weekly this week, I'm going to have a a few of my my thoughts on on the fish stuff. But I felt like it's kind of peripheral and not key to the text. Because really, despite us thinking like, I mean, when we hear Jonah, we want to just finish with Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the great fish. Uh, The fish is only mentioned in two verses out of the whole whole book. He's he's not a main player, but he's he's definitely what's remembered by so many of us. And so I'll mention that a little bit as well as what's going on with his descent into Sheol and that sort of thing. But I I don't want to get distracted from the main focus here, because what we have here is a man who's run from God, and now he's been thrown overboard, and it's interesting that even the way he phrases this, where he says uh, in verse 3, in chapter 2 here, he says, you threw me into the depths. He, he understands that even though it was the sailor's hands that tossed him overboard, we read that last time, 
that, that God was sovereignly behind his, his discipline and his punishment in, in this act of justice in Jonah's life. And so Jonah goes down. And what is brought out, especially in the, the ESV translation in, in verse, um, in verse, uh, verse 1, it, there's a... A, a conjunction there. Then Jonah prayed. It's only after things get really bad. It's only after he's in this whale or this great fish that then he prays. I mean, how 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 typical is that of us, right? We we know that prayer should be part of the warp and woof of our everyday life, but yet sometimes it's not until we're in like the absolute worst situation possible. It's only then that we cry out to God. And that's exactly what Jonah did. There seems to be a pattern in Scripture that God brings his servants through hardship and difficulty in order to make them into the men and women he wants them to be. I don't know if that's been your experience, but I think as I talk to those who have walked closely with God, it's those times of great suffering and great difficulty that God uses to bring us us closer to him and draw us into that greater intimacy. Sometimes, as in the case of Jonah, it's the result of our own sin and our own stupidity. If there's many here this morning who could give testimony, that sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's suffering that comes as the result of a health diagnosis or a a prodigal child or other people's harmful and wicked decisions that they've made that have brought suffering into our life. But in each case... Our suffering and our affliction serves the purpose of filing away the sin that's in our hearts. God takes no delight in making his children squirm. He does, however, delight in making his children holy. And just like a sculptor sitting before a piece of marble, knowing that there's so much that needs to be chiseled away in order for the beauty of that sculpture to emerge, God realizes that there is, there's a lot of rough areas and rough edges in our life, and that's putting it mildly, that need to be filed away, that need to be chiseled away, areas of our life that need to be brought in conformity to the will of God, pride and jealousy unforgiveness, anger, selfishness, self-centeredness, on and on we could go. It's God's heart, it's God's desire to see us become like Jesus, and the process for that is sometimes very painful and very difficult. Sometimes we have to sink low. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. God uses these moments of tremendous grief and suffering and heartache to make us more like Jesus. This principle works itself out on various levels. In J.K. Rowling's Harvard commencement speech back in 2008, she described a point in her life in which she, quote, had failed on an epic scale. An exceptionally short-lived marriage had imploded, and she said, I was jobless, a lone parent, and as poor as it is possible to be in modern Britain without being homeless. But then she added, I began to direct all my energy into finishing the only work that mattered to me. Had I really succeeded at anything else, I might have never found the determination to succeed in this one arena, which, as you might imagine, was writing Harry Potter. Even for someone who is an unbeliever, she recognized that it took took disappointment, it took failure, it took heartache to bring about true and lasting change. How much more important is it for the believer to recognize that God is taking us through, no matter what stage you're in, again, whether it's the result of your own sin or suffering that's not the result of sin, taking us through these things to make us more like Jesus. Tim Keller points out that the same was true of Jacob in the Old Testament. He wasn't prepared to lead the family of God until he had been forced to flee from his home, until he experienced years of mistreatment at the hands of his father-in-law, and until he faced, or at least what he thought was going to be, a violent encounter with 
the brother that he had grieved and hurt, Esau. It was only then, after all of that hardship, that Jacob met God face to face in Genesis 32. Same could be said about Abraham, Joseph, David, Elijah, Peter. All of them became powerful leaders only through failure and suffering. Keller goes on to say, it's only when you reach the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when all your schemes and resources are broken and exhausted, that you're finally open to learning how completely dependent you are upon God. As is often said, you never realize that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. You must lose your life to find it. If Jonah was to begin finally to ascend both in the water and in his faith, he had to be brought to the very end of himself. The way up for Jonah and for us is first of all down. The usual place to learn the greatest secrets of God's grace is at the bottom. I want to just give you a little tip that someone has shared with me. Find men and women of the faith who have learned this lesson. Most likely they're going to have gray hair or none at all. Because it takes us a long time to learn this lesson for most of us. But find somebody who has truly learned that the way up is down. The way to be great in the kingdom of God is to be a servant. The way to be near to Jesus is to walk through suffering and hardship and trials and hold fast when there's nothing else to hold on to. Hold fast to Jesus. You find those people and you spend as much time around them, shut your mouth and listen to them. Listen and hear their wisdom. You, 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 can't, you can't get that stuff in, in books. I mean, yes, biographies are amazing and wonderful, and I highly commend a good Christian biography. But to sit at the feet of a saint who has suffered and walked with Jesus in the midst of it is, is, is more than a lifetime of seminary education could give you. Be with people who know how to walk with Jesus when they're at the bottom of the ocean. A.W. Tozer has famously said, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. When you're so full of pride, so full of self-centeredness, so full of uh, I can do it myself just fine, it just has to be rooted out. And for some of us, it takes a lifetime. And even when we are breathing our last, God is still working that out of us. The second thing we see here in the text is Jonah's prayer from the deep. We see, first of all, Jonah's descent into the deep, and then secondly, Jonah's prayer from the deep. And we'll just touch on this briefly for the sake of time. Jonah basically quotes the Psalms. <laughs> Several writers have pointed out that he borrows from Psalm 3, 5, 16, 18, 31, 42, 50, 65, 88, and 120. <laughs> I'll tell you, for all the, the, all the grief that we've given Jonah, um, this man knew the scriptures. He was steeped in the word of God, and even though he was not living what he knew from the word of God, when hardship came, it was the word of God that oozed out of him. I mean, if this is not a, a, uh, an advertisement for scripture memory, I don't know what is. Jonah was a prophet of God. He would have been raised upon the Torah and would have learned the scriptures and he would have known them inside and out. He was not living it out. We've pointed that out several times. He was not living out his own theology here. But when push came to shove, th those things came to mind. When God brought him to an end of himself, he turned to the word of God. Listen, my brothers and sisters, if we don't know the word of God, where are we going to turn in those moments? Jonah, the, the Psalms just came out of him. 
And, and, and the, the Psalms, I mean, I, we've talked about this before. The Psalms are uh, such a beautiful guide to prayer. I hope that you use the Psalms to guide your prayer. That's what they were written for. They were a worship guide, a prayer guide, not only for the corporate community, but for individuals in the Old Testament. It's important, yeah, to, to have our heartfelt, extemporaneous prayer, of course. But there are times when we need to be guided in our prayer and given some rich background and theology. And the Psalms give voice to all the emotions that we go through and experience in this life. The Psalm brings them out. I, I love what Richard Phillips says. He says, the Psalms wrestle with every human emotion, every human experience, every high and every low, all in such a way that the believer finds himself or herself restored to faith in God. In this way, the Psalms present the doctrines of salvation in lived experience and struggle. The Psalms present the saving truths of God's word as light fighting through the foggy mist of human struggle to restore the believer's vision of heaven. The Psalms may be the Bible's best answer to the remarkable prayer once offered to Jesus. I believe, help my unbelief. Every emotion possible is represented in the psalm. And here David, and here Jonah offers up this prayer. It really could be categorized as a thanksgiving psalm. And he just expresses that his, his need for salvation. He expresses the hopelessness that he felt. He says, you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the sea. The, the current overcame me. All your breakers and billows swept over me. He's speaking literally and figuratively. He literally was, the billows were sweeping over him, but in his heart and in his spirit, he was feeling overwhelmed with his sinfulness. One writer has said, sometimes the very best thing that can happen to us is the very thing we most dread. For the simple reason that it strips away our self-reliance, humbles our pride, and removes from us every other hope, save that of God. Sometimes this is what it takes for us to really pray. I wish we had more time to talk about prayer right now. I wish that my prayer life wasn't the strongest when I was in the most desperate plight. But that's so true. When we feel like life's spiraling out of control, that's when we find ourselves on our knees. If we look at prayer not so much as a discipline or as something that I've got to do, but as a chance to be near to God as we were singing about only moments ago, coming into the presence of God, sitting with God, hearing from God, sharing our heart with God, how much more a blessing prayer becomes. The final thing that we see here is God's grace in the deep. God's grace in the deep. Jonah says in verse 7, as my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love, but as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Jonah experiences the grace of God when he is at his lowest point. God's scandalous grace is on display once again. You see, I don't know, scholars are kind of divided over this. I, was read, I read a lot of commentaries on this particular passage. And some say they feel like, oh, Jonah's at a place where he's learned his lesson. And this is a prayer of repentance. And then others are like, ah, I'm not so sure. I'm not sure, sure Jonah's truly broken before the Lord. Jonah's definitely thankful that God has rescued him. He makes that very clear. He gives credit to God. He expresses gratitude to God. He is glad to be alive. That previous despair that we, saw, we left him in chapter 1 with has now given birth to gratitude. I am no longer about to decompose in this fish's stomach. Thank you, God, for that. Jonah's grateful, but I don't know yet if he's totally repentant. This is a psalm of gratitude, but it's not really a psalm of lament. Let me show you what a psalm of lament sounds like. You can look it up later, Psalm 51. 
This is David after his sin with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence, and you are blameless when you judge. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then later he says, the sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. I don't know if Jonah's truly broken. Given the way he responds in chapter 4, I don't know that he is. God longs for us as we go through these experiences of conviction of sin to come before him in humble repentance. And that's what we'll talk more about next week. Regardless of what you feel about Jonah's condition, the bottom line is he didn't deserve this. This is God's grace. His chance at new life it's God's grace. The prophets didn't always fare so well. I was just reading this week in my, in my uh, yearly scripture reading as it's walking me through the Old Testament, 1 Kings 13. Do you remember this story of the prophet that was sent to Jeroboam to, to bring a message of judgment to this wicked king, Jeroboam? And the prophet's not even named. And he goes and he delivers the message. And what God had told him was he was not allowed to eat or drink anything until he returned home, until he had delivered the message and made it all the way back home. That was the stipulation. A really simple, straightforward command, but I mean, given that I can't go about three or four hours without eating, not an easy one to follow, I would imagine. And, and so he, he delivers the message, and on his way back, and even Jeroboam tried to offer him something. He said, I can't do it. I can't do it. God told me I can't have anything to eat or drink. So he, on his way back, and this other prophet comes along and, and actually lies to the first prophet and says, uh, I want you to come and have dinner with me. And the guy says, no, I can't. I'm not allowed to. God said, I can't eat and drink until I get back home. And this other prophet says, oh, no, no, God told me that you can. <laughs> How many times have you had people come and say, I got this message from God. That's another sermon. But <laughs> and, uh, and he's just like, oh, well, if he told you I can eat and drink, that's fine. And so he does. And then... God comes to him and says, uh, you disobeyed. You had a bite to eat and you drank before you got back home. And God appointed a lion to kill him on his way home. He said that's what's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. You read that story and you're like, holy cow. I mean, he just had something to eat. A little water to drink. And, and he struck down. You see, when we respond like that, and that's my, that's my response. I'm a pastor, and I've read that story I don't know how many times, and even this week I'm like, yeah, that seems a little harsh. That reflects just how little we understand how serious sin. We just don't understand how, how wicked it is to disobey God's word, to hear God's word and say, no, I'm going to do my own thing. We don't understand it. There's not a single one of us who, who truly gets the depth of rebellion and wickedness involved when we say, no, God, I'm not going to do it that way. That's what Jonah deserved. Jonah deserved to die at the bottom of the ocean or in the belly of the whale. That, that would have been justice because that's, that's what sin, that's the penalty for sin. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. Jonah, Jonah deserved to die there. God would have been within his right to do so. But Jonah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It's a beautiful verse in Isaiah that says, Therefore the Lord is waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion. Do you believe that this morning? 
whether you're at the bottom of the ocean today because of your own doing or because of other circumstances outside of your control, the Bible says the Lord is waiting to show you compassion. And we get this idea of what a rescue, of what deliverance, of what a, the end of the suffering looks like. We've painted this picture in our mind of here's what it would look like for God to be gracious to me in this moment. And you know what? God's idea of what grace looks like and our idea of what we want him to do is not always the same. The whale was an act of God's grace. Jonah being swallowed by a whale was God's saving grace for Jonah. He didn't drown at the bottom of the sea. Sometimes God's grace in your life may not look like grace. It may be a severe mercy. It may be harsh. It may seem like, what are you doing, God? Why are you letting me go through this right now? And God is up there with tears saying, you don't know how badly you need this. You don't know what I know. And how often we kick and we flail and we argue and shake our fist at God. And all the while, he, he's saying, listen, here's my grace. I'm waiting to show you mercy. The key phrase of this passage and probably the whole book can be found in verse 9 where Jonah declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. It is the God. He is the God who saves. He is the one who rescues. It's not through any of our works. It's not through anything we've done. But it's God and God alone. I want to finish with an excerpt from one of my, one of my favorite uh, stories. I love uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia books. I had a chance to read them with most of my boys. And um, I don't, if you've never read Chronicles of Narnia, I don't care whether you're six or uh, 600, pick up those books. And uh, just because they're children's books, doesn't, it just makes them um, a little bit easier for us to grasp the, the riches that are in there. And, and uh, in his, his book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it contains one of the best first lines you'll ever read in a book. It starts off this way. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> and as the story goes on, Eustace, you discover, is the kind of character that you just love to hate. He's the most annoying. He's the most um, obnoxious, whiny, uh, arrogant, know-it-all that you'll encounter in the story and, and it doesn't take but a, the first page and you already just don't like this guy and all the way through he's self-centered and all he can do is look out for himself and he complains constantly throughout this journey well one of the islands that the crew lands on they're on a ship and, and they're sailing and they land on an island and Eustace finds he goes off on his own and he finds this dragon's lair and he finds that this there's there's treasure there and his greed just uh, becomes all absorbent and he puts on one of the gold bracelets and he falls asleep and when he wakes up he discovers that he's turned into a dragon and Lewis writes this he says sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy dragonish thoughts in his heart he became a dragon himself he had fleeting thoughts of relief at being the biggest thing around but he quickly realizes he's cut off from all of his friends and all of humanity and he feels a weight of loneliness and desperately wants to change. There's a beautiful, beautiful scene where later that night, Aslan, the lion, the, the Christ figure in the stories, leads him to a large well. A well like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. Eustace describes the scene to another character, Edmund, after the fact, and he says the water was so clear that he thought if he could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain in his leg from the, the gold bracelet he had put on when he was a human and now crushed at his skin and his scales. But Aslan told him that he had to undress first. The scales first had to come off before he could be the person that he wanted to be. As Lewis wrote in his 
letters to Malcolm, he said, we must lay before God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. Eustace found that no matter how many layers of dragon skins that he managed to peel off himself, he was still a dragon. He needed another to remove the scales. Lewis writes, then the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me remove your scales. And Eustace said, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And When he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me be able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab off a sore place, it hurts like billy-o, but it's such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like it that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And threw me into the water, and it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found all that pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why. I had turned a boy into a boy again. Every time I read that, I get tears in my eyes. That scene always moves me. You see, it reminds us that we can't fix ourselves. No amount of work, no amount of effort. It reminds us that transformation only comes from God. And that it involves pain. It involves being hurt and being broken so that we can get beyond ourselves to the rough edges of sin and disobedience and self-centeredness and be peeled away. I love how Lewis finishes the scene with a note of narration. He moves from Eustace's first-person description, and Lewis says this, It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time on, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those days I shall not notice. The cure had begun. For Jonah, I, I think the cure had begun. Jonah still was going to be very tiresome, like Eustace. Jonah still had a hard heart toward the Ninevites, as we'll see. He still was angry with God. He still didn't want to go and obey God. But I do believe for Jonah, the cure had begun. You see, for, I think all of us, I was going to say most of us, but I think it's all of us. The Christian life, if we graft it, I'm standing backwards here, but it doesn't look like this beautiful upward line. There are dips and there are lows. There's Regression, there's disobedience, there's conviction and running from God, and there's trials that we don't respond humbly to, and all of these things. But if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the, the cure has begun. The Bible says that you are a new creation, and He longs to transform you moment by moment, day by day, into the image of His precious Son. That's the Christian life. And as these moments come where we're cast into the deep, may we hear the voice of God. May we see the mercy and grace of God even when we, we can't explain it. Even though we may be in pain, may we look to Him, the one who meets us with his grace in the depths. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you show us grace 
when we don't deserve it. That's the very definition of it. Your undeserved riches and kindness toward us. Jonah at the bottom of the, the sea and in the belly of the whale did not deserve to be rescued, but you did so. Heavenly Father, we ask for your work and your kindness to be to be seen. Give us eyes to see your mercies that are new each and every morning. When we walk through these, these moments of hardship and maybe long moments, years, whether it's from our own sin or the suffering comes from somewhere else, may we rest in your work. May we trust you you're working to change our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor, we have a scalped potato emergency. And you can all help. <laughs> for those of us that are staying for the luncheon afterward, I just ask that you to go uh, get a drink if you like, but then take your seat at the table, and Jana will talk to us at the beginning of the luncheon rather than during it. That way, we get to have scalped potatoes instead of bags of potato chips. <laughs> Thank you all. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Um, I just want to invite you to, before we head out to the luncheon, just to let you know that if you, if you want prayer for anything or you'd like to spend some time, whether you would like to pray with somebody or pray on your own, our elders are up here. And let me just uh, share this benediction with you before you go. Flock of the Lord Jesus Christ, may the Lord, your shepherd, refresh you in your daily places, stand beside you in your dark places, provide for you in your dangerous places and welcome you into his dwelling places. May God bless you as you go forth this week.